political goals, in my view, of, of regime change and what in Ukraine now are unachievable for us. I'm already already seeing them trying to revise their war aims, and likely they're going to have to accept something quite short of what they initially wanted as they went into this war, some kind of settlement. Three weeks ago, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, starting a cataclysmic war in Europe not seen since 1945. The war has already devastated a countless number of lives, led to a swift and international response against Russia, and prompted a rethink of European security and the international order itself. To cover this tragedy which may define global affairs for years to come, POFA is recording a series of episodes covering all aspects of this crisis. This episode will focus on a higher-level military analysis of the conflict, while future episodes will delve into the humanitarian crisis, the sanctions regime, and the future of NATO and European security. Today, we seek to understand the current state of war in Ukraine and discuss what the war itself may look like in the days and weeks to come. Joining us today is Michael Kaufman. Michael Kaufman serves as Research Program Director in the Russia Studies Program at CNA. And as a fellow at the Keenan Institute, Woodrow Wilson International Center at Washington, D.C. His research focuses on the Russia and the former Soviet Union, specializing in Russian armed forces, military thought, capabilities, and strategy. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. It's great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. So... Michael, I want to ask, when the war began about three weeks ago, Western analysts predicted that Russia would attempt a lightning invasion of Ukraine, securing the capital of Kiev in potentially as little as 48 hours. Three weeks later, and the Ukrainians still hold that capital city. Did Western analysts make incorrect assumptions about Russian strategy, or has the Russian military had really serious failures thus far? And I guess it's possible that both could be true. So... I think that the most important point to make here is that is Western assumptions were premised on the likelihood that the Russian campaign would have maximalist war aims, that it would be about regime change, but that the Russian military would attempt a large scale operation, you know, involving combined arms and, and a lot of the sort of military power they could bring to bear onto the battlefield. Thus, they would prosecute the war in a rational way. And the challenge with that assumption is that this is this is not what the Russian regime intended to do at all. They actually thought they could get away with an attempt at quick regime change and avoid all the fighting. They had somehow assumed that within a few days they could get forces into the U.S. capital and that they could uh, quickly get Zelensky to flee or maybe to surrender. And initially they pushed their forces into Ukraine um, under the assumption there wouldn't be much fighting, sort of driving down roads as though they were still in their own country. And they even didn't tell their troops because they kept the operation largely secret. So they informed the Russian military in the very last minute. And I think that explains a lot of the issues they've had with morale, with poor organization, and the fact that they're sort of attempting a full-scale invasion of what is the largest country in Europe outside of Russia, but without the actual military operation to do it. That, that at least helps describe the first several days, I'd say about the first four days of this war. So, yeah, I would say if, if there's one mistake that was made by Western analysts is assuming a rational force employment and that the Russian political leadership 
assumptions would, would be bad, but that nonetheless the military right, would recognize that the, the scale and scope of the operation they're attempting would, would require them to make serious preparations and conduct sort of what you would consider to be a proper war effort. And, and that's not at all what happens. So then you could see them realizing that they'd made a, a major miscalculation and making adjustments to put together a combined arms operation several days into the war. Right. So, Michael, I guess, I, so Putin has, the way that he discusses the war is a special um, is a special operation rather than calling it a war. Do you say that's fair, that, you know, the Kremlin really did think that this would be a special operation and not a war itself? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually his war. It really is Putin's war. And he really thought that he could conduct a special operation to quickly attain regime change in Ukraine. And that this whole thing could be over in a matter of days. Um, right. And and it is special in the sense that it's also the preparations for it, at least within much of the Russian military, were covert. That is, I think knowledge was kept at fairly high levels, and most junior officers in the Russian military didn't realize they were going to be going across the border until very, very late into the into the preparations. So. Uh, believe it or not, it, it, it actually is that. And it's not, it's actually historically not that far outside the norm of uh, classic blunders in attempting regime change and other operations that, if not Russia, certainly the Soviet Union had attempted to pull off. And I guess, Michael, could you could you maybe describe to our listeners some of the things that the Ukrainians, that, or maybe the Ukrainian armed forces have done that have really surprised Russia or made it harder for them to actually complete its aims in a, in a quick manner that it originally intended? Well, look, the, the operation failed, the initial one. Then Russian forces made an adjustment to steadily start prosecuting this war uh, as, as still one that they were trying to get done quickly on a relatively short timetable. Ukrainian forces had chosen to... Uh, focus on defending cities. And so their strategy is much more leveraging the urban terrain, which strongly favors the defender, and not providing sort of mass formations for Russian forces to engage. And this, of course, frustrates the Russian military, not only because it's not really fighting the way it normally uh, uh, trains and organizes to fight. This is not doctrinally a conflict that I think for the Russian military is one is, is one they find um, uh, easy, given given the way they typically organize. But the Ukrainian military has essentially broke itself up into much smaller squads and units, started conducting ambushes on roads and junctions, which were quite lucrative because Russian units were operating in small detachments rather than kind of larger combined arms formations. And they were also outrunning their logistics and supplies. The initial rate of gain of the Russian the Russian invasion was quite high, and that even further uh, taxed their logistical capacity uh, to sustain their forces. And then, you know, Ukrainian units basically were, were fairly thoughtful. I mean, I think they're smart on how they're fighting the war. They concentrated air defense where they knew uh, air attack would be likely, like Kiev and Kharkiv. They went uh, about uh, putting their forces together as far as they could into cities, but not... Um, uh, not condensing them, right, so that Russian units couldn't mass against any particular type of formation or devastated enough with artillery fire, since Russia's primarily a fires-based uh, military. 
And I think they've been pretty creative in their in use of drones, uh, use of uh, the limited reconnaissance assets they have. And, you know, because the Russian military start off this war with most of its capabilities sitting on the sidelines, it was very puzzling to any analyst looking at this. They started the war, there wasn't a serious air campaign, you know, it's very limited use of rotary aviation, no electronic warfare, no release of cyber. Um, they seeded the information environment entirely right off the bat because they were trying to keep the war secret from their own public. They thought it'd be over in a few days. So you can see that the people in Russia who would normally do information operations, they would brand the war and do all these things. Those folks only got called in to put all this together, maybe about four or five days into the actual conflict. Like they themselves very clearly didn't know this was going to happen either. And, um, and so a lot of Russian capabilities uh, in, in the first week of the war were, were essentially not used. Uh, when And I gave Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, a lot of opportunity. Basically, Russia traded away the initiative. Ukrainian forces then uh, were able to easily survive the initial shock of the Russian operation, generate reserves, start organizing, and start putting together proper defenses in urban environments, and getting volunteers and other people together and distributing various capabilities to them anti-tank weapons and the like. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. And it's really interesting and also connected to my next question, Michael, which is this concept of air superiority. Kind of Western analysts had predicted that Russia would try to seek to establish its own air superiority over Ukraine very early. And we saw this in the first days of the conflict where Russia began by launching missiles, hundreds of them, at Ukrainian air and air defense systems. I guess... Is the, is the failure of Russia to establish air superiority also connected to the lack of initial will to kind of undertake a full-blown war effort? Or is there something else going on here? Yeah, so, right. Those were the predictions. Um, it's certainly not just something that the West would do, but something that you would expect Russia to do if you see them do another conflict. The reason they didn't do it is the same reason they didn't do most of those things. They... Uh, they actually didn't want to substantially engage Ukrainian forces. They didn't want to take losses. They also had pretty restrictive rules of engagement in the first 48 hours of the war, meaning they were trying to not uh, kill Ukrainians or destroy cities because that would dramatically sabotage your goals. If your goal is to install a pro-Russian government right, and try to do that within a matter of days, one of the biggest things that will sabotage that effort is if you actually just start destroying cities and and inflicting substantial casualties because you'll turn most of the public um, uh, who you intend to rule, at least even through a, through a puppet state, against you. Now, that being said, uh, after the, the failure of the initial regime change operation, it was clear that the Russian Air Force still largely sat on the sidelines. The reason for that is they did not want to pursue air superiority over the whole country. They were trying to establish pockets of local air superiority where Russian forces were fighting along kind of the axis of advance. I think, at least from my point of view, that was partly a mistake, right? But from probably the Russian point of view, they were taking a force conservation measure because Ukraine does have some substantial air defenses and Russian air force is not very adept at uh, missions like suppression or destruction of enemy air defense. The kind of things that we are pretty good at because, you know, let's say the United States is an expeditionary airspace power. Russian Air Force is used very differently. It's usually used to, usually employed to support um, combined arms ground operations. 
and they have much lower, much lower capability capacity in, in that space. So I think they were trying to conserve themselves, avoid major losses, and not engage air defense systems where they don't have to. But that piecemeal approach has really cost them over time. I think, I think definitely in the first two weeks of this war, they consistently assumed that the war would be shorter, that gains would be faster, and they were trickling in more and more military power. And this is a fairly classic mistake when you have uh, a failed strategy and you're just trying to steadily further resource it. And over time, you're throwing good resources after bad. So having a better understanding now of the initial phase of the conflict, Michael, can you tell us about the current state of the war? Where, What are Russia's current main lines of effort into Ukraine? Yeah, the war's kind of broken up into maybe three separate fronts almost, but you have the, the attempt to create a pincer movement around the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. That's stalled out because logistics are hard there. The fighting's been very difficult. Ukrainian forces have put up pretty stiff, uh, pretty stiff resistance, particularly in, in urban settings. Um, Russian forces have moved down from the north sufficiently that they have a partial encirclement of the capital, at least in the west. They've enveloped one of the Ukrainian cities in the north, and they're slowly, very fitfully progressing uh, towards the capital from the east. Uh, but but clearly, they're, they're way behind their expectations in terms of the kind of gains they could make. And so the Russian military make big adjustments after about a week, week and a half and as well in, in how they're operating as a force and start fixing a lot of the problems from the, or from the early part of the war. Uh, in the east, the fighting had been um, pretty fierce around Kharkiv, and Russian forces have kind of basically just been pressuring the city through open bombardment against urban areas. Mostly they are trying to push in southeast of that major city in order to create a larger pocket envelopment of Ukrainian forces in the JFO, the Joint Force Operation opposite the Donbass, which takes us to the south. The main Russian breakout and success of the war was in the south. Correlation of forces really favored them. Not a lot of Ukrainian units there early on. They tried to retreat, and the Russian force quickly expanded to take some of the uh, main regional cities. Those regional cities also have railroads running to them, right, and rail hubs that allow Russia to have much better logistical access and and able to resource the fight heading both southwest and southeast, and they, they were able to push out quickly along the coast of a Sea of Azov, link up with uh, Russian-led forces um, from the Donbass, kind of a term for what you might consider to be the amalgamation of separatist units there from, uh, from the occupied territories, and encircle the coastal city of Mariupol, and then try to push up north from there to compress Ukrainian units in the GFO, but from the from the southern from the southern tip of the fight. And then the further west, they they kind of got stuck around the Ukrainian city of Nikolaev and are now trying to work their way around that city towards Odessa and try to steadily envelop it. So the fights progressed a lot slower for them, particularly in the past week. You don't see them making uh, major advances, but they are also making steady gains and there's Big questions about attrition, right? There, there's a real cost to Russian forces from these operations, but there's also real cost to Ukrainian forces too. And as the fog of war persists, don't know, or at least you cannot tell necessarily what the state of either army really is. And as you kind of talked about, and as people probably have heard 
from the news, it appears that Russia's advances in the country have largely been eerily stalled. Is this the case in all regions of fighting, as you just mentioned? And has this just come down to Russia's miscalculation, as you talked about earlier? Or are there other factors at play also? I mean, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think actual Russian advances are stalled. I think some of them are um, not able. Some of them are just not able to make progress because they're at the major at the capital, Kiev, right? And so they're engaged in urban fighting and try to encircle a city. Um, I, I actually don't like that term because it's not a fair depiction of what's happening in the battlefield. There are attacks and there are counterattacks by Ukrainian forces. There are areas where Russian uh, uh, advances continue to make slow progress. There are areas where they're getting beating back. Um, um, the, it's a shifting battlefield. It's not really stalled. Michael, you predicted early in the conflict that facing military frustration, Russia would likely turn to increased use of indiscriminate force through bombings. And we've seen the horrors of this strategy this past week with the bombings of Kharkiv and Mariupol. What does Russia hope to achieve with this change in strategy, and what are its costs on the Ukrainian people? Well, it's not a change in strategy. It was clear from the outset that the Russian strategy was to avoid major cities and to get past them, right, because they don't have the forces to take them. So they're trying to work their way around the big cities, envelop them, and keep moving on to see if they could actually isolate uh, Ukrainian forces. That got a little harder because many Ukrainian forces were smart and took to the cities, Um and and try to try to then disrupt ground lines of communication. So I think, and I don't know, but this is just a guess that the reason they've uh, resorted to heavy bombardment of some urban areas, in case like Kharkiv, it's because they're actually trying to pressure the city, evacuate civilian population, and then use that as a demonstrative case to other cities in order to see if they can if they can get them to surrender. In cities like Mariupol, that just heavy urban fighting, and I don't think I don't think they have a way of making progress without use of artillery and without actually destroying parts of the cities. And that's not that's not uncommon from previous campaigns. Like anywhere you see them having to engage in heavy urban combat, eventually artillery gets called in and large parts of the city end up being destroyed in the process. Right, Michael. I, well, first, I want to thank you for kind of clearing up some of the misconceptions I had before coming into this conversation about the state of the war, because I think it's really helpful to better understand. But I also want to ask you, I've seen a lot of analysis online of kind of what Russia's military performance in Ukraine means for, you know, its military at large, and, you know, maybe what that would mean for a Russia conflict elsewhere in Europe. I'm wondering, could you tell us what is fair to kind of conclude about the Russian military so far and what is really overreaching analysis? Right. Well, so, you know, obviously their performance is unimpressive, especially compared to what some people had assumed. Uh, the challenge you always get is that in defense communities, the takes won't be nuanced. So people will swing from uh, Russians are 12 feet tall to then arguing that Russians are four feet tall. And neither of those are true. But the biggest issue is how do you actually think about military power, right? A lot of, I think, common notions about military analysis just are, are, aren't accurate. They're not true. It's not how military analysis is done. So 
context in the scenario really drives your expectations of outcomes, right? And military power needs a context to express itself. It does not exist in the abstract. You can't measure it on pieces of paper. You know, I online made a clear example and said, look, would you expect to be Chinese military performance in a war against Taiwan? It's going to be very different from your assumptions about a war between China and India, right? And in a very similar way, there are things that are that um, you can generalize as lessons from Russian military operations of performance, problems with tactics, challenges with logistics, challenges of force organization employment, let's say problems in leadership and, and the way certain things come together from this fight in Ukraine. Those are true. They clearly have some issues with basics and fundamentals. Uh, but there's other things you cannot take as generalized lessons to, let's say, a, a hypothetical war between Russia and NATO. It's just a different scenario, different context, right? And if you if you take some of the conditions that are that are key to understanding this war, right? You have the Russian military basically uh, essentially being lied to and being sent into this fight. So troop morale is low. You see cases of desertions. Um, you see a lot of units getting isolated or or were abandoned because they're actually operating generals, very small formations. Um, you see poor command and control. You see problems with communications, for example. And I can't tell us that because things don't work. Is that because they didn't actually prepare and organize properly for this, for this conflict? And so they haven't set up all the things they would for a different, a high-end fight with uh, an opponent that they they expected to have a regional or large-scale war with you see a lot of russian air power sitting on the sidelines and part of that actually could be in reserve because it's very likely that in moscow they're concerned nato could still intervene and that this war could expand um and and as always you know when you, when you look at lessons from this war you have to ask yourself all right the performance is poor some of the capabilities that are interesting in other contexts aren't really being used or aren't effective in this fight, so we can't really evaluate them. Uh, there are certain big structural factors to this war that we have to take into account, but we also have to ask ourselves, what does that mean for the future? How is the Russian military going to adjust? How are they going to evolve from this conflict? Certainly they've seen the same things that those people like me observe this conflict have seen. So what does the Russian military look like after this? You know, How are they going to change themselves? from from those pretty pretty poor showing you know and i'm i tend to be kind of a conservative analyst uh i know that in general we overestimate the russian military there's good reason for that it's frankly it's always better to overestimate than to underestimate and um we also sort of think about the russian military usually in different contexts than this one it's not a military that was originally built and designed to invade what is effectively the largest country in Europe. That military actually was organized without the manpower and without the logistics for, for what is this kind of operation. So there's still a lot of questions to be asked. How much of this directly translates into other cases or scenarios that we might consider? And that's kind of the issue is that it's very hard to say, this is how we rated Russian military before. This is how we rate it now. You just can't do it that way. There's just not my view how military analysis should be done. Uh, in the same way, if I was to say, all right, the United States didn't win Afghanistan, so what's your assessment of U.S. military power moving forward based on U.S. performance in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, right? Um, 
And, and my answer is not that significant, actually. It depends on what kind of context, what kind of war. And uh, I, I wouldn't I would take some generalizable lessons, but not others. I'm sorry. It's just an unsatisfactory answer. And the biggest challenge is that wars like this, we have a military performing much more poorly than you'd expect. You, know, you have analogs or, or parallels to previous conflicts. Let's say the the Soviet invasion of Finland in 1939, 1940, the Winter War. And you have to be very cautious about the lessons you learn. Right. So. Soviet performance was quite poor in that conflict. They ultimately won at, at a great price. And uh, the one one takeaway that could have been made early on is that it's a bad army. That's the takeaway Germany made. Uh, Germany paid dearly for learning certain lessons about the Soviet military from that war that ended up being not true. Yeah, Michael, I like. I don't think that's an unsatisfactory answer at all, actually. I think oftentimes the correct answer is is the most nuanced and you have given us that, which I think is really important. Yeah. I think we often come to that in the podcast a lot is we'll ask a very, a question that could have a very simple answer and could be a tweet in one word, but isn't always the case. So our, our ex, we invite experts on to elaborate further, but Michael on that same kind of in the same vein, I want to ask you, we've seen really hundreds of videos online of abandoned Russian military equipment. And the kind of first, the first response we saw online to these videos was that it represented poor Russian morale. But do these videos of abandoned Russian military equipment actually represent that? Or is it more complicated like we just discussed? You know, some, there's definitely some case of desertions because as I said before, this is Putin's war and the Russian military is prosecuting it. But you see that, that a lot of the troops are well, it's it's a range from being uh, clearly feeling like they were lied to and sent in there under false premises to also not really wanting to fight Ukrainians. But the other issue is you see a lot of Russian equipment abandoned because they are having major issues with uh, with sustainment, right? There are some things that I have learned about the Russian military is they spend quite a bit on procurement modernization. I don't think this conflict at all is a general failure to modernize. I think it is a general failure to maintain and to repair. And there are big challenges they have with logistics as well, though some of those are overstated from in, in popular readings online. But this is actually a very good example of, um, at least from my point of view, when you see a military make choices, where you see a military skimping on things, and to some extent you can factor things like corruption, but I find that to be a pervasive condition. And, and if, if if you get too intellectually lazy, you quickly start drawing causality to pervasive conditions for specific outcomes that you can't actually prove, right? So meaning you can't hand wave and say corruption, this, corruption, that. Um, the the truth is that they, they clearly have skimped on maintenance and the sustainment of some of their equipment. Probably the ratio in their forces, for example, you see of, uh, let's say, BRAM or other uh are their armor vehicle designed to extract broken down units is pretty low. They have low availability of certain support assets. Overall, the logistics in that military are not set up for strategic ground offenses. Conceptually, when they built out this army, the military strategy and subordinate operational concepts uh, were set them up rather differently. So there are parts where I'm surprised, but there are parts I'm also not surprised that along three axes, uh, three axes in this large invasion, they've had some pretty serious logistical support issues. 
Michael, I wanted to first thank you so much for giving us a great overview of the conflict so far. And I wanted to ask you, looking forward, maybe placing political goals aside where possible, what are Russia's military goals and what are the chances that the Ukrainian forces can stop Russia from achieving them? Is it possible or plausible that the Ukrainians could simply exhaust the Russian forces? Yeah, sure. It's, it's a great question. So first, actually, we should ask something else. What are the political goals? The political goals, in my view, of, of regime change in Ukraine now are unachievable for Russia. I'm already already seeing them trying to revise their war aims, and likely they're going to have to accept something quite short of what they initially wanted as they went into this war, some kind of settlement uh, with Ukrainian leadership. Now, can they still achieve you know, a military victory? Yeah, of course. War is highly contingent. Russia can win. Ukrainian forces can exhaust them. Uh, a lot of it's not predictable. And I say, look, analysis is not fortune telling. You should be very careful peering into a crystal ball to make pronouncements of what's going to happen in the war. Wars can turn dramatically. I'd say that the Russian military, as it stands, has a chance of achieving military objectives, but much more slowly and much higher costs than they or the political leadership wanted. Those may not at all amount to achieving desired political ends, which is the real issue, right? Because wars are fought to achieve political objectives, not just to achieve battlefield victories. On the sort of Ukrainian side of the story, you know, their morale continues to hold. They put up pretty fierce resistance. I think they're fighting fairly smartly. Can they exhaust the Russian military over time? Yep, absolutely. They are pretty effectively trading uh, territory, they're trading space to buy time. And Within the coming weeks, the Russian military could find significant parts of the formations they've sent in, combat ineffective, exhausted. And at the very least, they'll need, you know, major operational pause to regroup, resupply, reorganize. So I do I do think and I do suspect that uh, at least the initial phase of this war can't go on sustainably. And I definitely see a way in which, well, Ukraine military, if not, <laughs> not that it could win outright. Um, can certainly win from a big picture perspective, right? And then there's all these areas that, that Russian forces have taken, but they don't really have the manpower to control. And over time, a substantial partisan movement or insurgency could make it too costly for them to to manage the parts of the country that, that they have seized thus far. And keeping in mind the unpredictability of war, as you just said, what in your analysis is your prediction on maybe how long the current state of warring may continue and how it might develop in the next few days, weeks, or months? Yeah, I'll say it. I don't know. <laughs> it's the first <laughs> answer. I, I think that, as I said, I, I think in the next couple of weeks, Russian forces are going to need a pause and maybe maybe they'll try to pursue a ceasefire if there's no settlement between now and then. And then, and then the war may well go on, but I don't have a good answer for you there. I don't know. I also don't know what's happening in behind the scenes negotiations between Russia and Ukraine either. So it's very hard to predict if there's anything serious there or if they're pretty far apart on any kind of deal that could introduce a ceasefire into this conflict. Right. And Michael, on that point, um, as you said, you think the political goals that Russia set at the start are unachievable. So what could be potential exits at this point or ends to the conflict? Well, it sounds like their alternative is to get a deal where, you know, Zelensky 
basically agrees to a neutrality clause in Ukraine's constitution, maybe recognizes Crimea as being Russian, and agrees to some form of independence for the Donbass, although the exact outlines and parameters of that particular point, I think, uh, are likely to be to be negotiated. Uh, if they don't get that, they could always pursue sort of a plan plan C, which is actual partition of Ukraine, you know, where the forces stop, whatever gains they're able to make in the coming weeks, that's uh, the territory that they end up holding. And, you know, they could they could create some some puppet states uh, within those within those regions. I suppose I don't think it's what Moscow wants, and it, it would be probably the most unsatisfactory option for them because they end up getting very little what they want. The sanctions stay in place, and there isn't a good way out for them from the conflict. Right. Well, on that um, very sad note, I guess, Michael, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and helping explain this really difficult con- um, conflict to our listeners. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good talking to you, and hope those folks listening. To- Listening to the conversation, I appreciate just how much uncertainty there is about about both the state of the war and 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 also its future trajectory. And to, to those like me who work in the field, um, sadly, this is a really tragic conflict that's that's unfolding. I I of course hope that it'd be over soon, but but I fear it's, it's a war that's still going to get uglier as time progresses. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.